0: Winter 506 BCE. A light snow dusted the pine trees of Boju, a village in the Chu state of China. But just outside the town, the scene was anything but serene. An army from the neighboring state of Wu was gathering. For years, these scrappy underdogs had been battling the Chu state, but they were always outnumbered and outgunned. This time, however, They had one distinct advantage. A military strategist named Sun Tzu. As the sun set on the camp, Sun Tzu slipped out of his tent into the nearby forest, making sure no one was following him. He stepped lightly in the snow, trying not to leave tracks. If a Chu warrior caught him, he might be killed. Then, something moved behind him. He spun around instinctively reaching for his bow and found himself facing two Chu warriors. The men were cloaked in leather armor with arrows poised to shoot. But Sun Tzu did not attack. He knew the men were not going to harm him. They were his spies. In an instant they recognized their master lowered their weapons with a salute and launched into an efficient description of the morale in their army, as well as the growing displeasure with their leaders. That was all Sun Tzu needed. He took the intel back to his camp, where he personally delivered it to his king, and advised that they attack at first light. It would turn out to be one of the greatest triumphs in Wu State history, and it was all due to Sun Tzu... And his secret cadre of spies. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify podcast, with new episodes coming out every Wednesday. And don't forget to check us out on Instagram at The Conspiracy Pod. I'm Carter Roy. Today, we're looking at one of the most impactful texts in history. Sun Tzu was a Chinese military general and strategist who lived during the 6th century BCE. After witnessing many battles, he wrote a comprehensive treatise on combat called The Art of War. Since then, the text has been translated into countless languages and is required reading in military schools around the globe. Even though it was written over 2,000 years ago, It continues to inspire soldiers and the shadowy world of espionage. The life of Sun Tzu is shrouded in mystery, and few facts, if any, are known for certain. He is mentioned in some ancient history books of China, but he is conspicuously missing from others. As a result, a handful of modern scholars question whether he even existed. Even those who acknowledge that he might have been a living historical figure during China's early history note that his famous text was likely written more than 100 years later than traditional accounts suggest. One of the main pieces of evidence pointing to his existence is an ancient text known as the Shi Qi. It is a highly respected written history of China composed in about 85 BCE, By analyzing information in the Qi Shi, scholars have said that Sun Tzu was born around 544 BCE with the name Sun Wu. He earned the title of Tzu, or Master, later in life. But he appeared to be set up for success from the beginning. He grew up in a prominent family in the state of Qi. His father was Minister of State. Unfortunately, the good times did not last. When Sun Tzu was still a young boy, a vicious war changed the trajectory of his life forever. In 532 BCE, violent unrest spread throughout parts of the Qi state. Twelve-year-old Sun Tzu witnessed firsthand the death and destruction that war brought to his homeland. To escape the bloodshed, his family abandoned their established lives and fled south. Sun Tzu's family were now refugees they sought asylum in neighboring states and eventually settled in the state of Wu which encompassed modern-day Shanghai there Sun Tzu's family rebuilt their lives from scratch much of Sun Tzu's childhood and adolescence remains a mystery but many historians agree that he likely became a soldier The military was an honorable path for a young man whose family had lost its stature and had to rebuild. As a result, Sun Tzu probably volunteered for the Wu Army at some point in his late teens or early 20s, where he was placed in a lackluster regiment. They were likely a hodgepodge of farmers and tradesmen who barely knew how to march in formation, let alone fight. Even though they had heart, They were ill-equipped and poorly trained. In Sun Tzu's first skirmish with the neighboring Chu state, he witnessed just how dangerous that ineptitude could be. The marauding Chu warriors marched in from the west. They wanted more than just land or territory. They came to pillage farms, livestock, and occasionally women. The Wu defended their territory as best they could with spears, staffs, and arrows, but they were outnumbered, outclassed, and often unsuccessful. Over the next few years, Sun Tzu witnessed battle after battle in which the Wu were routed by their larger neighbors. The constant death and ruin were harrowing, but they didn't turn Sun Tzu towards pacifism. On the contrary... He knew his people had to defend themselves. His experiences had taught him that war was an unfortunate but inevitable part of life, necessary for preserving community and land. The problem wasn't war, it was that the Wu were waging it poorly. If they fought smarter, the fighting would effectively serve its purpose, without dragging on for years, Shorter wars would mitigate the devastating economic impact of wartime, and countless lives would be saved. But the Wu weren't the only state failing to effectively, quickly win their battles. States all over China were suffering from the same haphazard preparation and poor strategy, and people were suffering as a result. So, Sun Tzu set out to solve the problem with a text called The Art of War. The art of war was different from previous written works about combat. Most early military texts focused on historical context, who fought whom and where. Sun Tzu, on the other hand, chose instead to deep dive into both the practical and philosophical aspects of warfare. His introduction stated, The art of war is of vital importance to the state. It is a matter of life and death a path to either safety or ruin. Later in the text, Sun Tzu wrote, A kingdom that has been destroyed by war can never return, nor can the dead ever be brought back to life. With the stakes laid out starkly, Sun Tzu offered a step-by-step guidebook to military success and, ironically, to the art of war's ultimate goal, peace. Peace. Unfortunately, many readers, even in ancient China, missed the point. They overlooked the warnings and the goals, focusing instead on the combat. The text consisted of Sun Tzu's 13 main principles of battle. He outlined specific strategies for training one's soldiers, preparing for war, and different types of warfare. But Sun Tzu's most groundbreaking revelations were not about combat at all. They were about espionage. Spies were the foundation for much of Sun Tzu's guide for warfare, since he placed supreme importance on knowledge. He wrote, If you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. And Sun Tzu knew that the most effective way to know one's enemy was through covert agents. At the time, nobody had laid out the principles of espionage in such a direct way. It became a sensation throughout the Wu state. The art of war passed from soldiers to commanding officers. Officers shared copies with their generals, and soon, Sun Tzu's lessons captured the attention of the king, a man named Ho Lu. King Ho Lu was a new ruler. had taken over from the previous head of state, who was assassinated about 515 BCE, and he was determined to put an end to the constant torment of the state's larger neighbor, the Chu state. Sun Tzu's The Art of War seemed like it might hold the key to the difficult win he was seeking. Perhaps it might even help him do more than get out from under the thumb of the Chu— Perhaps it might establish the Wu as a dominant force in China. So, in 513 BCE, King Ho Lu supposedly settled in to read The Art of War. And it was even more enlightening than he'd hoped. Throughout the essay, he felt like Sun Tzu was addressing him directly. He read the text over and over and fixated on one passage— The leader who hearkens to my counsel and acts upon it will conquer. The leader who does not will be defeated. King Ho Lu took Sun Tzu's words to heart. He was determined to be a leader who listened and thus conquered. So, he summoned 32-year-old Sun Tzu to the palace. According to one story, when Sun Tzu arrived, he was led into a grand ballroom. There, the king was holding court with a handful of his advisors and several hundred beautiful courtesans. The king was surprised to see how young Sun Tzu was. He had expected a grizzled old warrior full of arrow scars. He wondered how Sun Tzu had written such a comprehensive guidebook to warfare. To assuage the king's concerns, Sun Tzu offered to prove his bona fides, ...or proof of his combat and spy credentials. He volunteered to train anyone in the king's court to march like a soldier. The king was intrigued. He then presented a challenge that shocked Sun Tzu. King Ho Lu requested Sun Tzu train all the female courtesans. He split them into two groups... ...and appointed two of his favorite concubines as officers... The royal court broke into whispers. They didn't think it was possible. The 180 women were notoriously loud and gossipy, but Sun Tzu didn't back down. He began by teaching the women basic marching commands, but when it came time to test their skills, instead of marching, the women started laughing. Sun Tzu accepted the blame for the mistake as the general it was his responsibility to make sure the officers and soldiers understood the commands he started again from scratch and taught them how to march this time when sun tzu tested the women they laughed again (laughs) now sun tzu announced that if the general's orders are clear but the soldiers still do not follow them then it is the fault of the officers in the military chain of command Officers are the conduit for the general's instructions. Any breakdown in that chain could cost the lives of hundreds or thousands of soldiers. Sun Tzu explained that officers who risk the lives of their soldiers must be punished severely. And so he ordered the king's two favorite concubines to be beheaded. At that, King Ho Lu halted the demonstration. He was impressed with Sun Tzu's commitment, but he refused to allow his concubines to be executed for the sake of the exercise. But Sun Tzu refused to back down. He argued if they stopped the demonstration, he would no longer be taken seriously in the state. The king relented and let Sun Tzu continue. So, as legend goes, Sun Tzu beheaded the king's favorite Concubines. Then, he kept going with the exercise. He put two new women in charge of the regiments. This time, when he tested their skills, the women marched with perfect coordination. It was a stark illustration of Sun Tzu's discipline and military standards. He assured the king that if he was allowed to train the Wu army... They would no longer be plagued by the neighboring Chu warriors. They would win everything King Ho Lu had ever wanted. It was too good a pitch to turn down. In an instant, Sun Tzu went from an unremarkable soldier and writer to one of the king's most trusted generals and his master of spies. Coming up, Sun Tzu's The Art of War is put to the test in real combat. And now, back to the story. It was the year 513 BCE in ancient China. After a decade of combat experience with the Wu army, Sun Tzu had panned a treatise on battle and espionage called The Art of War. In spite of the title... Sun Tzu's primary goal was a step-by-step guide for achieving peace through decisive and efficient warfare. Sun Tzu's masterpiece had attracted the attention of his king, who was tired of being bullied by the state's neighbors, the Chu. King Ho Lu named Sun Tzu one of his prized generals and tasked him with one mission, to achieve a lasting peace with the Chu. Over the next year, Sun Tzu launched the first phase of the project. He personally oversaw a massive retraining of the Wu army. Much like he did with the female courtesans in Hou Lu's palace, he started with the basics of marching. To Sun Tzu, proper marching was the foundation of an army. It showed that a group was disciplined and ready. The art of war even included guidelines on how to march. Sun Tzu wrote... March swiftly to places where you are not expected, as well as pass quickly over mountains and keep in the neighborhood of valleys. When the soldiers were fully trained, Sun Tzu then turned his sights on officers and generals. He taught them how to give clear and precise orders. He instructed them on proper discipline and punishment, but he also advised them how to endear themselves to the rank-and-file men. He advised them regard your soldiers as your children and they will follow you into the deepest valleys look on them as your own beloved sons and they will stand by you even unto death with sun tzu's soldiers and officers trained he turned to other fundamental aspects of his army including equipment weapons and supply lines but after the physical logistics were in place Sun Tzu could finally turn to the more nuanced aspects of warfare, like espionage. In The Art of War, Sun Tzu outlined five types of spies. Local, inward, surviving, converted, and doomed. Local operatives were simply citizens of a particular location who could give on-the-ground assessments of political climate or current events, Inward spies were officials from the opposing government who could divulge top-secret information about their plans. Surviving spies were quintessential run-of-the-mill agents. They infiltrated an enemy's territory, gathered intelligence, and then reported back to Sun Tzu and his generals. Converted spies were double agents, an enemy's operatives turned against their homeland. In fact, Sun Tzu described exactly how to convert double agents, setting standards that would be followed for millennia to come. He said, The enemy's agents who have come to spy on us must be sought out, tempted with bribes, led away, and comfortably housed. Thus they will become converted spies and available for our service. But not all of Sun Tzu's operatives were lucky enough to receive bribes and comfortable housing. Others had a more sinister fate. Sun Tzu's final type of secret agent was called a doomed spy. As their name suggests, these were operatives tasked with a grave mission. Their actual purpose, which their generals likely kept from them, was to be caught and tortured by the enemy. During their torture, Doom spies divulged misinformation instead of true intelligence. Most of the time, their missions ended with death. It was a tragic job, but Sun Tzu believed it was necessary to a successful military operation, along with the work of all his other spies. Prior to Sun Tzu, Most Chinese armies might have relied on one or two types of spies. Sun Tzu, on the other hand, believed that to truly understand every aspect of his enemy, his spy network had to be comprehensive. He wanted to know the morale of the citizens, whether their soldiers were clothed and fed, and if the king had any enemies in the government. We're reminded of his words, "'If you know the enemy and know yourself,' You need not fear the result of a hundred battles. So, over the course of the next year, Sun Tzu cultivated a legion of spies within the Chu state, operating from its highest courts to its smallest villages. His agents brought back intel on farmers and villagers. He received updates from their king's court, and most importantly, he kept tabs on the state's battalions of soldiers. In 512 BCE, after a year of intensive information gathering, Sun Tzu went to King Ho Lu. He cautioned that what lay ahead wouldn't be easy. They had 30,000 soldiers, and the Chu state had 200,000. But nevertheless, he believed it was time. He was confident in his men. What they lacked in numbers, They more than made up for in strategy, discipline, and intelligence. They were ready to face their nemesis. So, later in 512 BCE, King Ho Lu and Sun Tzu marched their little army into Chu territory, and almost immediately, they captured the city of Shu. Over the next few years... Sun Tzu and his army faced fierce battles as they pushed farther into the Chu state. The Chu called on all of their reinforcements. But the Wu were clever. They utilized all of Sun Tzu's strategies. They used their spy network to spread disinformation. For example, they feigned weakness when they were strong, they portrayed strength when they were faltering, they used the hills, valleys, and forests to their advantage. And they made progress. Still, the constant fighting took a toll on the Wu forces. So when King Ho Lu wanted to push on Ying, the capital of the Chu state, Sun Tzu advised against it. He reminded the king of one of the most important principles of the art of war: to know your enemy and know yourself. In this case. Sun Tzu knew that his soldiers were tired and overworked. He counseled the king that a skilled general knows when to fight and when to rest. The Chu stronghold of Ying lay hundreds of miles to the west. It would require months to march there. Many of the soldiers wouldn't survive the trek, and once however many men were left did arrive, they'd have to orchestrate a messy, prolonged siege to subdue Ying. It simply didn't make sense. On the other hand, if they returned to Wu and recharged, they could work on other important missions. First, they would increase the number of spies in Chu. They needed to learn as much as possible about their adversary before venturing to Ying. And second, they would set a trap for the Chu. Ho Lu, as always, was impressed by Sun Tzu. He agreed to his trusted general's plan. In 510 BCE, Sun Tzu turned away from the Chu and attacked the neighboring state to the south, the Yu people. The Yu were a small state, but they were growing in their ambitions. Sun Tzu's military operations served two purposes. He hoped to bolster the Wu army with more men from Yu, but more importantly, It made it look like the Wu army was distracted. Sun Tzu even sent spies to the Chu to whisper about what was happening. It appeared that the Wu army was divided. Perhaps it was time for Chu to counterattack. In 509 BCE, the Chu took the bait. They marched hundreds of miles from their capital city to invade Wu. Little did they know, It was likely a part of Sun Tzu's plan all along. Even though the Wu army seemed occupied with the Yu in the south, Sun Tzu had left a battalion of his fiercest fighters in Wu. So when the Chu arrived, they were ambushed. This time, the Chu were hundreds of miles from their home and stretched thin. They were vulnerable. They were easily overwhelmed by the smaller tactical group of Wu soldiers. It was a devastating defeat for the Chu, and the remnants of their troops were sent home reeling. No one watched this retreat more closely than Sun Tzu. It had been about three years since he had advised King Ho Lu to delay attacking the Chu capital of Ying. Now, he decided the time was right. Not only were the Chu forces in disarray, but his Wu army was reinvigorated after being on home turf for a few years. So, in the early months of 506 BCE, Sun Tzu announced to King Ho Lu that their army was ready to attack the Chu and finally lay siege to the stronghold of Ying. The king was delighted and hopeful that his patience would pay off. He threw Sun Tzu and his generals a feast to wish them luck. Sun Tzu, meanwhile turned to his secret weapon to ensure that the operation succeeded. His five types of espionage. First, he dispatched a new group of spies into the Chu state, tasking them with gathering intel on the best marching routes and political climate in Ying. He also knew that his troops would face a huge battle near the city of Boju, where many of the Chu army were garrisoned, so he sent a team of operatives to convert double agents within the Chu army there. Sun Tzu himself followed behind with the rest of the Wu army. It was a long march into the heart of Chu territory. After months of traveling and small skirmishes, in the winter of 506 BCE, Sun Tzu and King Ho Lu's forces arrived at the village of Boju. A light snow dusted the pine trees and farm fields. It was here that Sun Tzu consulted with his Chu spies in the Dark Forest. The next day, the Wu army attacked. The Battle of Boju was a decisive victory for the Wu army. Once again, the Wu were outnumbered, but their discipline was unmatched. The battle turned the tide for the rest of the war the Chu army was now on their back foot. The triumph of the underdogs of Wu against their nemesis of Chu became one of the most famous military engagements in ancient Chinese history texts. But Sun Tzu wasn't concerned about history books. He was singularly focused on crushing the Chu and granting the region peace. This time, instead of halting to rest, sun tzu ordered his legions to push on toward the capital at the end of 506 bce sun tzu arrived at the gates of ying he ordered his men to attack the chu defended their city with every ounce of strength they had but once again the wu army employed all of sun tzu's tactics and tricks they feigned weakness when they were ready to attack They set traps and ambushes for the Chu forces, and most importantly, Sun Tzu's spies alerted them about weak points in the city walls. Finally, after many years of training, fighting, and gathering intel from covert sources, Sun Tzu led the Wu army through the gates of Ying. It was a moment that few of them had expected. They had spent decades under the thumb of their nemesis now they were safe from marauding armies and it was all due to sun tzu for a time after the invasion of ying the wu people were feared in all the neighboring states of china sadly during those years of wu dominance sun tzu was allegedly killed in battle he didn't live to see his legacy But that legacy would live on for millennia. Coming up, the legend of Sun Tzu changed warfare and espionage forever. And now back to the story. Sometime shortly after 506 BCE, Sun Tzu fought his last battle. But the legacy of Sun Tzu was only just beginning. Slowly, the art of war made its way outside the Wu state. Kings and generals alike studied Sun Tzu's principles of combat. Over the following centuries and millennia, the art of war became one of the most important texts on warfare in China— When the region officially became a unified empire in the mid-200s BCE, the emperor, Shi Huangdi, credited Master Sun for his success. Sun Tzu's tradition remained relevant even into 20th century China. In 1949, Mao Zedong spearheaded a communist uprising founding the People's Republic of China. Throughout his career, from battles to national reorganization, he depended heavily on the art of war for the better part of a millennium however sun tzu's teachings remained confined within the borders of china but inevitably sun tzu's manual for warfare migrated to neighboring countries in the 8th century ad the art of war arrived on the shores of japan it spread quickly amongst japanese warriors and generals Sun Tzu's teachings became Gospels for Samurais who valued his principles of discipline and secrecy. From there, the text spread swiftly to the modern-day geographical regions of Korea, Thailand, and Vietnam. Then, in the 1700s, the text officially reached the Western Hemisphere. In 1782, a French Jesuit missionary stationed in China acquired a copy. He translated it to French and shipped it back to Paris. The missionary's translation, in hindsight, was rudimentary. Scholars say that it included very little that Sun Tzu wrote and much that he didn't. However, it was enough to pique the interest of some European readers. And eventually, in 1910, British scholar Lionel Giles wrote an extensive analysis and translation of The Art of War. Giles' interpretation, though it contains some anachronisms, is still considered one of the best. But it didn't lead European armies to pick up Sun Tzu's military tactics at first, or his espionage tactics. Where Sun Tzu considered his five types of spies a critical part of combat, some Europeans thought espionage was dishonorable. At least until the 1930s. On September 1st, 1939, Germany invaded Poland. World War II began. Less than a year later, the Nazis rolled into France. The British prepared to be next. They were outnumbered and outgunned. They knew they couldn't fight a stand-up battle with the Germans, so the British turned to some ancient strategies of warfare many of which Sun Tzu had first outlined in his text. First, the British sought to appear strong to hide their weaknesses. One way they accomplished this was through ghost armies. The British, along with their American allies, built inflatable tanks, planes, and cannons to station around the countryside. From afar, German spy planes saw these ghost armies and reported back to Berlin that the British and Americans were stronger than they believed. But the Allies couldn't rely on ghost armies alone, so they undertook an elaborate plan to undermine the Germans through espionage. To prevent the Germans from learning about the British-American counteroffensive of D-Day, the British employed a network of spies throughout Europe, Just like Sun Tzu recommended in his text, the Brits cultivated double agents to spread disinformation to the Germans. Whether or not the double cross system and other espionage missions were directly inspired by Sun Tzu is debatable, but if Sun Tzu had been alive, he would have been proud. He might have been even more pleased to see his ideas spread to yet another continent in the second half of the 20th century. In the 1950s through 1970s, America was embroiled in the Vietnam War. The American military was arguably one of the strongest and most advanced in the world, rivaled only by the Soviet Union. The Vietnamese, on the other hand, were outnumbered, and many soldiers didn't even have proper weapons or footwear. By many measures, the U.S. should have easily defeated the Viet Cong. But the Vietnamese Communist forces, led by Ho Chi Minh and General Vao Nguyen Giap, had a secret weapon, Sun Tzu. They were students of the art of war. In fact, Ho Chi Minh translated Sun Tzu's text into Vietnamese for his officers and soldiers. Minh and Giap put Sun Tzu's lessons to work against the U.S. Instead of fighting head-to-head in what surely would have been a losing battle, they heeded Sun Tzu's suggestion. The general who is skilled in defense hides in the most secret recesses of the Earth. For Ho Chi Minh's forces, those secret recesses were the jungle. Using the dense cover of foliage, they crafted an extensive network of subterranean tunnels, The passageways shielded them from American bombers and aerial reconnaissance. The Viet Cong used the jungles to hide weapons and men, and they didn't forget Sun Tzu's rules of espionage. They frequently employed local townspeople to report on American troop movements. Despite the odds stacked against them, the Viet Cong were able to grind the U.S. military to a halt using the strategies of the art of war. After their defeat in Vietnam, the US finally took Sun Tzu's teachings seriously. The art of war was introduced to military colleges and officer training schools. But the Pentagon realized that the ancient text wasn't only relevant to the military. It soon became required reading at the CIA as well. In fact, in the 1960s, CIA director Alan Dulles became an aficionado of Sun Tzu. He even praised the ancient Chinese master in his own influential guidebook to espionage, The Craft of Intelligence. Dulles wrote, To Sun Tzu belongs the credit not only for this first remarkable analysis of the ways of espionage, but also for the first written recommendations regarding an organized intelligence service— He comments on counterintelligence, on psychological warfare, on deception, on security, on fabricators, in short, on the whole craft of intelligence. Dulles made sure the art of war was one of the guiding principles of the American intelligence community. From his CIA, it spread to other U.S. intelligence agencies. But unbeknownst to the U.S., Their greatest rival was also taking lessons from Sun Tzu, none other than the KGB. In the 1950s, the art of war was translated into Russian, and the art of war quickly became a central pillar of the KGB. Its officials frequently quoted Sun Tzu's maxim, "...we will force the enemy to take our strength for weakness, and our weakness for strength and thus will turn his strength into a weakness. The Soviets employed this strategy throughout the Cold War with the US. Their military was, by many accounts, less polished than the US's. Their equipment was more rudimentary, but what the Soviets lacked in flashy facilities, they compensated for with excellent espionage, including recruiting double agents like the FBI's Robert Hansen, and the CIA's Aldrich Ames. Together, these converted spies divulged millions of classified documents to the Soviets. Even today, we see evidence of Sun Tzu's influence in Russia's disinformation campaigns, cyber warfare, and political meddling around the world. It is a tribute to Sun Tzu's insightfulness that his work is still, if not more, Relevant today, over 2,000 years after he wrote The Art of War. The Art of War was so prophetic that some historians doubt that only one man could have written it. In much the same way that literary scholars are skeptical that William Shakespeare wrote all of his plays, many historians believe that Sun Tzu was a collection of people. But whatever the truth, Perhaps the confusion simply means that Sun Tzu was himself the quintessential spy, leaving his identity as a mystery while planting vital intelligence. Intelligence that influenced armies and espionage for millennia. Thanks for listening to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify podcast. New episodes come out every Wednesday, and check us out on Instagram at The Conspiracy Pod. We'll see you next time. And remember, the truth isn't always the best story, and the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify podcast. This episode was written by Katie Burris and Adam DeSilva, with writing assistance by Nora Battelle. Sound designed by Anthony Valsic with production assistance by Joshua Kern. I'm Carter Roy.